Open your copy of the scriptures, please, to 1 Thessalonians, which you'll find in page uh, 1170 in the pew copy of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The earlier scripture spoke of the humility of Christ and what he was willing to endure for us. And here we hear Paul living a life of humility and meekness as well as a demonstration of his dedication to the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll begin with the second verse. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. <clears throat> On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And as we read here, he did not take lightly his ability to have that authority as an apostle, but instead put it aside for the betterment of those he taught to. Now we're going to sing in a minute, and I want to read a little bit before I do from uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, known perhaps more famously for his hellfire and brimstone preaching, was very impressed with how God was revealed in nature as well. And so we read, as I was walking there and looked up into the sky and clouds, there came into my mind a sweet sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. I seem to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty and also a majestic meekness and an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. Surely, as we look to the majesty of a mountain scene, as we watch a thunderstorm come through with power and might, but also as we look at a butterfly or look at a flower and the tenderness and gentleness of the beauty there, we see God's meekness and majesty. But can there be any better example than that which we're about to sing about, the majesty and meekness combined in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Will you stand as we dismiss our children and sing with us meekness 
and majesty. Thank you, Ed. That quote from Jonathan Edwards was wonderful. What a great and glorious and gracious God that we worship. Perhaps you've seen a cartoon that shows a homeless man with tattered clothes standing by a racetrack selling little booklets for a dollar apiece. And the title of these booklets? How to Make a Fortune Betting on the Horses. I mean, the incongruity of the situation is obvious. It makes you realize why stockbrokers and money managers feel compelled to drive big cars and dress for success. We expect the message to be reflected in the messenger. And aren't we a little suspicious of dentists with bad teeth, uh, marriage counselors who are divorced, diet experts who are overweight? In such cases, we often uh, have a right to ask whether we're seeing what we're seeing is simply a a case of incompetence or hypocrisy or even deception. Physician, heal thyself, we say. Now, the media may not be the entire message, but it's certainly an important part of it. And the continuing interest in the personal lives of political leaders, I think, reflects something of this understanding. Uh, Don't say you're going to be honest with the American people if you're not going to be honest with your wife. But I'm sure there's no area where the, the... message is tied with the media as much as in the area of religion. I mean, nothing is so scandalous as a minister of the gospel caught in a contradiction, denying with his life what he says with his lips. And the shameful immorality of some Christian leaders inevitably makes the newspapers, and in a sense, it should. For such a behavior does not just provide juicy tidbits for gossips to chew on, it's also a test of the credibility of the preacher. Jesus said as much, didn't He? Speaking of the wolves and sheep's clothing, the false preachers, He said, you shall know them by their fruits. A licentious lifestyle is as much a a form of heresy, every bit as much as, as denying the deity of Jesus Christ. The minister of the Gospel must live in a manner worthy of the message of the Gospel. And the Apostle Paul knew this very well. His reputation was not merely or even primarily a personal matter to him. It was intimately connected with the credibility of the gospel that he preached. And as it is today, he had to be careful about the the pitfall of guilt by association. Those preachers, they're all alike. Have you ever heard that? I certainly have. Uh, No doubt Paul had heard something like that, too. But instead of fallen televangelists or megachurch pastors to contend with, in his Greek world, Paul had to distance himself from a professional class of itinerant teachers and preachers known as sophists. The name sophist comes from the Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. And these wise men made a living lecturing on a variety of topics, including virtue and rhetoric, but all of which had a relationship to the art of getting on in life. Being a success. And these were the people who gave the first success seminars, which has become so uh, widespread today, especially in the business community. The sophists were the, the media experts of the day. They would travel from city to city, set up on a soapbox or, or rent a hall, and as skilled orators, they would hold audiences spellbound with their golden tongues, telling people how they could be a success in life. Now, the very nature of their profession tended to produce a certain mindset, which uh, placed an emphasis on material success and, 
and they had an ability to argue for any point of view, irrespective of its truth. And so inevitably, the sophist methods fostered a, a kind of skepticism. Skepticism both about the claims of reason to arrive at any truth at all and about the claims of any moral code to truly be binding on anybody. They were moral pragmatists. All that mattered was being a success in this life and, for the sophists, making some money in the process. Well, Paul had come to this Greek city of Thessalonica. And he'd come to preach. Now, he stayed only a matter of a few months at the most, and then he left quite suddenly. And, and in this letter that we're studying, the apostle is renewing his contact with the church there, having been fearful that those who had come to faith through his ministry may have begun to fall away, perhaps doubting the integrity of Paul's ministry and consequently questioning the truth of his message. And maybe there were those who were trying to tell these people that their friend Paul was really just an ambitious religious empire maker out for his own glory. Or, or perhaps that he was just another one of those sophists telling people what they wanted to hear so that he could earn a few bucks. Or, or maybe he was just some tyrannical leader looking for power. We don't know. But whether there were charges like this or not, Paul in our passage this morning wants the Thessalonian believers to have no doubts about his ministry and about his message. And so he calls to mind what they already knew about him. Four times he says, you know, uh, chapter two, verse one, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Verse two, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. Verse five, you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put up a mask to cover up greed. Verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. In addition to that, he says in verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. And in verse 10, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now you get the impression that Paul is being a little bit defensive here. And perhaps reacting to some who were defaming his character and so denigrating his message. And Paul had plenty of opponents. You'll recall he was running out of town. Well, in response, he argues in our passage this morning that his ministry was indeed worthy of his message. As he reminds them, instead of being driven, we were called. Instead of being sophists, we were servants. Instead of being tyrants, we were parents toward you whom we love. Now, Paul speaks a great deal about himself in these verses, but I think we need to remember that he did it for the benefit of his readers. The benefit uh, both of the Thessalonians and by the providence of God for the benefit of us here this morning. So I want us to look then at the character of the ministry of Paul, and I want to consider the implications that that has for our lives as he urges us to become imitators of him as he imitates Christ. So again, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Look at verse 4. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Verse 6, we're not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. 
I think the first thing we see here is that in Paul's defense of the integrity of his ministry is his conviction that instead of being driven, he was called. He was not driven either by personal ambition or personal gain. No, he was called by God. And I'm using a distinction here developed by Gordon McDonald in his book, Ordering Your Private World. Driven people, he contends, are people who feel compelled to achieve. There are people who drive themselves hard to win, to earn, to impress, to dominate. There are people who have a strong need to be recognized, to stand out, to receive a pat on the back. There are people who have to concede to prove to the world that they are somebody. And usually the goals they set to determine success are the external, the material, the measurable, the size of their house, their stock portfolio, the gross sale of their business, the number of people who look to them in deference or for advice, the number of friends they have on Facebook, the number of people who follow them on Twitter, or for driven pastors, the number of people in their church. Driven people have an insatiable desire for more, bigger, better, more expensive, the latest version, the hottest new gadget. They, they're not content with what they have. And driven people long to be in those positions of honor. They push hard to get to the top. And that's why we so often find them there. You've known people like this, I'm sure. Maybe you see a little bit of this in yourself. I know I do. And Paul, it seems, had been a driven person. And he had a resume to prove it. He had been educated by one of the leading rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. He had chosen to live in accordance with the strictest sect in Judaism, the Pharisees. He had been zealous for the ways of the law. He threw himself into the task of persecuting the heretical Christians without mercy, going from city to city in his efforts to root them out. He was a driven man. But then he was called. On the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ appeared to him. And Jesus called him to relinquish his path of self-achievement and to claim the achievement of Christ on his behalf. To receive the grace of God and then to go and, and tell others of that good news. He was called by God. And Paul's gospel ministry he was not his own idea. It wasn't what he would have chosen to do. We had previously suffered. We've been insulted in Philippi. As you know, he tells them in verse 2, I didn't want to come to you with the gospel. I wouldn't have were it not for the power of God who gave me boldness to speak in spite of opposition. Opposition that may have come from within as much as from without. This gospel, it was not his. It was entrusted to him by God. It was God's gospel. And he knew himself to be simply an apostle, one sent out by God with a mission, with the authority of God to speak about this great good news. Paul was a, a driven man no longer. He knew himself to be called by God. Now, do you see the difference that this makes? See, in one sense, in his new life, Paul had become a captive. He had a new master. It was now his life's desire to, to be devoted in the service of this new master. He was a captive to Christ. But, but in another sense, Paul here was set free. 
He was set free in the sense that he was no longer a slave to the whims and preferences of those around him. uh, For he sought not to please people, but to, to please God. His sense of personal identity no longer rested on his outward successes. It came from the Lord himself, the Lord who loved him, the Lord who cared for him with a a constant and accepting, gracious and merciful love. He was now a son of his heavenly father. What a wonderful sense of security that that must have given him. He had an unwavering sense of purpose about his life, a steady north star to guide his every step. You see, he was he was called of God. And this call of God in his life became the touchstone of his every decision. The Lord, in a sense, sat as the undisputed king of his life. Among all the various voices within that were vying for his vote. His allegiance, these special interest groups that we all have within us telling us, oh, no, this is most important. Oh, no, you must do that. You must please this person. No, no, God was king. Jesus Christ ruled. This was his vocation in life to respond to that gracious call. This was his supreme ambition. No longer did he have to be driven to achieve. Now he was simply called. To be faithful to this God who loved him in Christ. You see, this is the gospel message. It's about God's call in our lives. Paul had mentioned that in his opening words uh, to them in chapter 1, which we looked at last week. The, the change that he had seen in their lives, the Thessalonian believers, was itself an evidence that God had called them to himself. And here in, in verse 12, he reminds these new believers that God had called them into his own kingdom and glory. See, that's what the gospel is about. We can't achieve a right standing before God. We, we can't be good enough. The sort of thing that Charles Wesley wrestled with in all his religious days. It was only as he understood the free gift of grace in the gospel. That he responded to God's call in his life. This, this summons to live before God in faith and love. You see, we can't storm the gates of heaven and demand to be let in. No, we must come at the Lord's invitation. His initiative, His calling in our lives. It's all of grace. And Paul knew that his own ministry must reflect this dimension of his message. Do you live with a sense of of God's calling in your life? Do you have a sense of vocation from God? Do you respond to that that one voice who stands above all others in your life? Do you you understand who you are in God's eyes through Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you have been called into His kingdom, into His glory, as Paul writes here? Or are you still driven? Driven by personal ambition to to make something of your life. How can you know if you're living with a sense of this calling in your life? One indicator I found is is, is can you can you turn the results of your activities, even your ambitions, can you turn those over to the Lord? Can you give them to him? If you see if you're responding to his call to do something. Then he'll take care of the outcome. Simply be faithful. Who are you serving? Who are you serving? It's God we're out to please. 
He's the one who tests our hearts. Be faithful. Leave the results to him. How much stress, how much heartache, how much heart failure we could save ourselves if we could just see this and live it out. Consider my motives when I came to you, Paul says. Instead of being driven by personal ambition, I was called by God. That's what this gospel is all about. And so Paul is here. He's defending his motives. And he continues that defense with an implicit contrast. He says, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. And, and it wasn't. Many had, had turned to Christ. But the final word of that verse, which literally means vain, it wasn't empty. It could be translated slightly differently. Our visit to you was not without substance, not without content. As he said in the first chapter, the gospel message he preached was not merely words. It came with power. It came with the Holy Spirit. It came with deep conviction. And it may well be that Paul has an eye on those professionals who are giving preachers a bad name. Instead of coming as sophists, we came as servants. Verse 3, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Verse 5, you know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Now, as we said, the sophists, they knew how to dazzle a crowd. They, they taught people how to be successful, successful in the outward and material terms. And, and the motives and morals of their message were all governed by that single goal. And their whole enterprise led to, to abuse. They had no concern for truth, just results. And their motives were inevitably self-centered. Guile was a part of their business, using the craft of rhetoric to further their ends. Flattery was always a useful ploy. Tell people what they wanted to hear. Make them feel good. Anything to mask their true intentions. But Paul would have none of those things. He always endeavored to remain above board in his dealings uh, with his people. As he told, them, uh, told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.12, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And it's interesting that in particular, Paul knew the power of money to distort the integrity of any endeavor. And that's why Paul made it his regular practice not to take fees or contributions from those to whom he spoke when he began a new work, especially in the Greco-Roman world. He was no peddler of the gospel and he didn't want to be confused with the sophists. And so he reminds the Thessalonians of this in verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Now, this is Paul, the apostle. This is a well-educated rabbi, a magnificent missionary, humbling himself, becoming a common laborer so that he could share the gospel with these people without the encumbrance of having to ask for a fee for his services. Like his master, he had come not to be served, but to serve. And isn't this what the gospel is about? Isn't the gospel about God's gracious love to us, offered to us freely. And Paul knew that his ministry had to reflect that reality. 
Now, I think we can admit that the ministry of sophists still exists. And I think we need to consider carefully our methods in commending Christ to the world. Do we engage in trickery? Maybe inviting people on false premises to some of our meetings and then dumping the gospel on them once they're there. Do we use uh, manipulative techniques, perhaps emotional, psychological, in our attempts to extract decisions from people? Or do we deal straightforwardly? openly, honestly, with pure motives, asking for nothing in return when we tell others of the free gift of salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. Yes, the ministry of sophists still continues today, but how the world needs to see the ministry of the servant in all of us. Again, reflect upon the humility of our Lord. As we read earlier, on the night he was betrayed, though he knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash his disciples' feet. That's what gospel ministry is supposed to look like. It's a reflection of the gospel itself. Our Savior left the glories of heaven to serve by suffering on our behalf. Paul's attitude of the servant flows naturally, I think, into the third dimension, the third demonstration of the worthiness of his ministry. He says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. Or as it's translated in the 2011 NIV, we could have asserted our authority over you. Paul came to Thessalonica with the full authority of Jesus Christ. He was a God-appointed leader in the church. These people were indebted to him for this message that brought them eternal salvation. And had Paul and his missionary partners followed the model of leadership in the Greek world, they could have set themselves up as absolute dictators in the church. But Paul reminds them, instead of tyrants, we were like parents among you. Now, there could be a few teenagers among us. Most of them are away. They say, tyrants, parents, what's the difference? Um, but look at what Paul says. He says, first, he, he speaks of the tender, loving care of a mother. Verse 7, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were, we were gentle among you, like a mother, caring for her little children. And the words Paul uses here speaks of, of a nurse, a nursing mother, nurturing not just any child, not, not any child given to her by some wealthy mistress for her to care for. No, but, but a nurse nurturing her very own child. We saw you as babes in Christ. We, we longed to feed you with spiritual milk. We rejoiced to see you grow and develop just as a mother does when she sees her baby's first smile, the first laugh. The first tooth, such was our joy in caring for you. That's how much you meant to us. And then Paul uses the image of a father, verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you literally to walk in a godly manner. And I picture a father trying to teach his, his daughter to take those first steps. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. 
She tries and then she falls. He picks her up. He comforts her. He urges her. Do it again. You can do it. That's how Paul was, was loving and caring for these people. God's, Paul's gospel is he was about a God who loves us enough to, to, to receive us to himself in just this way. He adopts us into his family to make us his sons and daughters. He told of a God who nurtures us like a mother. A, a God who encourages us and comforts us and urges us like a father. See, Paul's ministry matched his message. No wonder, you see, he didn't simply have a professional relationship with these people. They weren't his customers. They weren't his clients. They were his children. He loved them from the heart. Verse 8, we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. How does that happen? He was only there a, a, a few weeks and maybe a couple of months. It's the power of the gospel to unite us to people in a new and, and incredibly powerful way. And how fitting we think of the Lord that, that Paul proclaimed who held nothing back from us. The Lord who, who gave himself up for us. The Lord who went to a cross for us. That's what the gospel is about. Being restored into this relationship with God who loves us as our heavenly father. And shouldn't those who speak of this gospel model this kind of love? In some respects, you see, that's why we can never fully separate gospel preaching from acts of gospel service. That's the way it's always been. Christian missionaries around the world have preached Christ. And they have built hospitals and schools and orphanages. They have evangelized and they have fed the hungry. Simply because they love people as God loves us. As the Father sent me, so I send you, Jesus says. And that's the way Paul operated. See, Paul had no one doubting the truth of his message. And that's why he guards the integrity of his reputation. Remember how we lived among you, he says. You know it's true. Instead of being driven, we were called. Instead of being sophists, we were servants. Instead of being tyrants, we were parents in our love for you. So what are some lessons we can learn from the words of the apostles here? Well, first I'd say to those involved in public Christian ministry or those who aspire to such ministry, whatever it may be, I'm not just referring here to preachers, but to elders, to deacons, to Sunday school teachers, to, to those involved in music, Bible study leaders, youth leaders, whatever it may be. Paul says, check your motives. Check your motives. Are you seeking the glory of God or simply the glory of those around you, your, your own glory? Are you looking for spiritual fruits or personal achievement? Are you driven by personal ambition or are you called to serve God? You see, I find that a church can be a place where people, both men and women, who feel frustrated and unfulfilled in other spheres of life, come to make a name for themselves. Christ is not looking for volunteers with their own plans and schemes, their own goals and objectives. In fact, Christ isn't looking for volunteers at all. He wants men and women who respond to his call in their lives. 
Now, this isn't meant to, to discourage people from Christian ministry, not at all. In fact, sometimes people may have the wrong motives for not accepting ministry roles. Nor do I want to imply that this is a matter of motives is easy or that it's something that can be dealt with once and for all. No, it's a constant temptation for anyone in public ministry, I assure you. But look again at Paul. He reminds us that our motives must be worthy of our message if our ministry is truly to reflect the gospel that we preach. And second, I think our passage leads us to ask, what are you looking for in a Christian leader? Do you secretly harbor a desire for a flatterer? One who will simply tell you what you want to hear and make you feel good about yourself all the time? Or do you want a hero? Someone who's adored by the multitudes, one who always pleases people, is able to manipulate them through emotional appeals, marketing techniques, whatever. Are you looking for a, a strong authoritarian personality, one who takes charge, one who's tough, one who tells you everything you need to do? Now, that may be what you're looking for in a political candidate or a company CEO or a military officer. But look again at Paul. He models the Christian leader who speaks the truth with integrity rather than with flattery. A leader who knows that God tests his heart and it is from God alone that his ultimate accountability comes. He is a leader who is meek without being weak, who is able to lead in the gentle love that Jesus displayed as a servant of all. Paul's model for a Christian leader is the Christ of the cross. That's what should matter in a Christian leader. But the final application is broader still. For Paul's not just speaking of a Christian leader in his defensive ministry. No, he's, he's portraying in these words the character of the Christian life for all of us. He's modeling a gospel-centered life. This is how our passage ends. Look at verse 12. We dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. You see, Paul knew that as a preacher, his ministry must be worthy of the Gospel. God's Gospel. So that he may be in a position to encourage you to live your lives in a manner worthy of God. God has called you, every one of you, not just a preacher. He's called you, Paul says, to be servants in his kingdom, to be members in his family, to share in his own glory, to display a, a family love to all the brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he says, I urge you to live lives worthy of God, this holy and gracious God of the gospel. For your life, your life, is a part of God's message to the world. And our life together as a church is a part of God's message to the world. And it is to bring glory, glory to His name. There's a story that's told of uh, Alexander the Great. During one of his military campaigns, one of his soldiers fled the scene of battle in fear. And the young man was brought before the great commander. 
And Alexander the Great asked this man his name. My name is Alexander, he said. The great commander simply looked down at him and said, Soldier, you change your ways or you change your name. And if you've trusted Christ, you bear the name Christian, belonging to Christ. Do you live in a way that is worthy of such a name? Worthy of the God who calls you into His kingdom and His glory. Worthy of the gospel. And I close, how do you do that? How do you do that? I don't want this simply to be another moralistic message. Oh, I need to try harder. No, here's how you do that. Quite simply, we live in a manner worthy of the gospel as by the work of the Holy Spirit, we experience the grace of God and the gospel in our lives. We need to understand and appropriate all that God has done for us. We have a power to love as we reflect upon how much we have been loved by God. We have a power to be generous to others as we recognize just how generous God has been to us. We have a power to forgive as we look at the sacrifice of God's own Son as the means of our reconciliation with the Holy God. We appreciate how much we have been forgiven. And we have a power to live in humility before others as we look at the way Jesus Himself humbled Himself even to the point of cross for us in our salvation. Have you appropriated this gospel? Has it penetrated your soul? And it's in the context of the church community that we are to reinforce this gospel. We're to live out this gospel among one another. We are experienced through our relationships with other believers. And we're called to let it permeate and penetrate our souls. And it will. And as it does, we will be approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. May we be imitators of Paul as he is of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God and the gospel. How much you have loved us. How much you have humbled yourself for us. How much you have forgiven us. How generous You are to us. How You speak to us of the truth. How Your motives are always pure and good and right. Lord, may we live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Worthy of the God who called us into His kingdom and glory. Lord, so that our lives may may reinforce this message. That our lives may commend this message to a watching world. So that more and more may come to you and enter into the glory of this, this new life that is ours in Christ. Oh Lord, may it be so. To the honor and glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We close with a song of praise to our God. Shout to the north. Let's stand together as we sing.